Hello everyone, my name's Tom Condon. My name's Lawan Yuan. And we're today covering the topic of advanced life support, which is taught during third year. As usual, there is a disclaimer that these slides and the content that we've created are our own content and not representative of the content taught in medical school or medical practitioners' advice. So Luan, what is ALS? To me, ALS is an extension of BLS. It adds in drugs and electricity and some procedures. So what I mean by electricity is we start using the defibrillator. It's not just used for dead people and it involves evaluation and diagnosis. It is also important to know about post-resus care and the four H's and four T's which we will go through. Yes, uh, the way I like to think about it is ALS is what medical practitioners do and BLS is what someone with senior first aid training might be able to do. So medical practitioners can prescribe drugs, they can shock people and it's not just for people who have collapsed. Because we'll be talking about some algorithms later on, if this is the first time you've covered ALS, I would advise that you stop this recording, quickly review them so that when we talk about them you are somewhat familiar. So before we begin talking about advanced life support, we would like to quickly recap BLS, basic life support. So that includes danger, checking for a response, sending for help or calling for help, checking the airway, checking if the patient is breathing or not breathing, and then starting compressions. You know, I always forget to check for danger because it seems so obvious. I yeah. don't know about you. The response I think everyone gets and calling for help, the 33 hash in the hospitals in Adelaide and obviously pressing the call bells is something you would do. Checking the airway, that includes a jaw thrust manoeuvre and you can only check for breathing once you've done the jaw thrust and then the compressions, they're really looking for quality of compressions. So and the third, depth of compressions. And the depth, yeah. So uh, 30 compressions to two breaths as I'm sure you're all aware as well as having the hand location in between the top of the sternum and the ziphy sternum and also compressing to a third of the chest depth as well as recalling properly. After this, the new ALS content begins. Good ALS starts with good BLS. It has been shown that early defibrillation has correlated to good outcomes. Therefore, you should attach the defibrillator within the first minute of performing ALS. Once you've attached the defibrillator, most defibrillators that we're taught to use, at least early on, are automatic defibrillator units and they'll narrate when you should be doing compressions and when you should be checking for rhythm. Obviously, to assess the rhythm, you should be familiar with how to read an ECG and we'll talk more about the shockable and non-shockable rhythms later. Suffice to say, if it's a shockable rhythm, you would then go on to deliver the shock and then continue CPR and if it's a non-shockable rhythm you would just continue your CPR and disarm the shock. In both cases whether you deliver a shock or not after two more minutes of CPR you need to see if you have a return of spontaneous circulation or ROSC. This may be checking for a pulse, checking for evidence of a perfusing rhythm on the ECG monitor or other signs of life such as breathing or moaning. After this, we institute post-resuscitation care, which we will come back to later. So that sounds rather simple, but what else is added during CPR, Luan? So during CPR, there are a couple of things that are important. We still need to maintain the patient's airway, either via chin lift or jaw thrust, 
We can also use other airway adjuncts if we feel that the patient's airway is compromised. So this includes an LMA or an endotracheal tube. Because we will be giving drugs as well, we need to establish access. This is either via IV intravenous or intraosseous IO. So there are two drugs that we need to know which are given IV or IO, which are? Adrenaline and amiodarone. Adrenaline is given one milligram after the second shock and then every second cycle. Amiodarone is given IV after the third shock. If the rhythm is non-shockable, adrenaline is given IV immediately and then after every second cycle. So the doses of adrenaline is one milligram IV and in both shockable and non-shockable are given every second cycle. If it is shockable, this is after the second shock. If it is non-shockable, it is given immediately. For amiodarone, the dose is 300 milligrams IV and given after the third shock. It is not given to non-shockable rhythms. So hopefully we get a good outcome. And if someone was to have return of spontaneous circulation, what would happen then? So for post-resuscitation care, there are a couple of things that we need to reevaluate. This includes the airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure of the patient. So that is the primary survey. So I think we've done the A, B, and C to death. But what is D, disability? Disability includes the GCS, so the Glasgow-Coma scale of the patient, and pupillary reflexes. And how about exposure and environment, our E? Our E exposure involves completely undressing the patient so you can fully assess the patient physically and then controlling environments for heat loss. So this would be if someone had fallen in a lake and was dripping wet and cold, you would remove their wet clothes so that you remove the heat loss. And then we will get a 12-lead ECG to check for ischemia and also monitor any cardiac rhythms. We will then instigate any treatment for precipitating causes and then re-evaluate oxygenation and ventilation. And lastly, we would like to cool the patient down Cooling the patient down assists with recovery. So that's a lot of content, but what precisely should we need to know and commit to memory? So I think the BLS stuff, definitely, the Dr. ABC, as well as the drugs and doses. This is one of the few areas where it's very important to remember the specific dose of the drug as a medical student. So for repetition, what are those drugs and doses? Amiodarone, 300 milligram and adrenaline 1 milligram. And they are both given IV. It is also important to be able to interpret the rhythms. So you should know your shockable rhythms, which are VT and VF, and your non-shockable rhythms. Another thing which I think is important to commit to memory are the four H's and four T's. The four H's include hypoxia, hypo or hyperkalemia, hypo or hyperthermia, hypovolemia, and the four T's include toxins and drugs, tension pneumothorax, tamponade, so cardiac tamponade, and lastly, thromboembolus, PE. So all of these are causes of pulseless electrical activity, or PEA for short. And the reason we memorise them is that they're things that we should check for because they are potentially reversible. So for hypoxia, how would we address that? We would address hypoxia by giving oxygen. So this could be given through the bag and mask, high flow nasal cannula, or any way you choose. This patient is collapsed and you give them as much oxygen as possible. And next would be hypo and hyperkalemia. 
Changes to potassium levels are one of the most important causes to remember. For both hypo and hyperkalemia, these are topics within themselves. However, we will quickly go over the treatments. So hypokalemia is defined as a serum potassium of less than 3.5. So Tom, what are the potential changes on ECG? Well, we might see flat T waves, U waves, prolonged QT and PR interval, broadening of the QRS complex, arrhythmia, and the topic we're talking about, PEA. We would give potassium IV in the case of cardiac arrest. The dose is not important to remember at third year level. Next is hyperkalemia, which seems to be more common. So hyperkalemia is defined as mild, moderate, or severe. In mild, it is between five to six. In moderate, six to seven, and severe above seven. Serum potassium. And the ECG changes would be peaked or tented T waves, which is different to the flat T waves in hypokalemia, flattened P waves, increased PR interval, widened QRS, deep S waves, and finally sine waves. The management of hypokalemia is a big topic in itself, but involves giving calcium gluconate, to stabilise the cardiac membrane. Glucose is given, then insulin. This allows for the uptake of the extracellular potassium ions into cells. Salbutamol is often given as a stopgap measure. Please keep in mind this is only a temporary solution and then we need to work out a way to remove excess potassium. This can either be done by dialysis as the most rapid and effective method, although not always available easily. It can be done via diuretic drugs or a potassium binding agent such as risonium. I would encourage everyone revise hyperkalemia as a topic to itself. Next is hypo or hyperthermia, which is quite self-explanatory. We would warm or cool the patient to a normal body temperature. We might see this in someone who's fallen into a frozen lake, which is unlikely in Australia, or someone who's just done a marathon in a 40 degree heat. And the last H is hypovolemia. So this is someone with massive blood loss or dehydration. In which case we would give IV fluids of normal saline. Hanging up a bag and attaching it to your IV will also help flush some of your drugs. Now the four T's. The most commonly tested is opioid overdose. And this is reversed by naloxone. The dose in arrest for naloxone is 0.4 milligrams, although it's not important to remember this dose. Other toxins are less commonly tested. Now the next T is tension pneumothorax. And how would we recognise this? We would recognise this with the patient becoming either short of breath, cyanotic, trachea deviated, bulging neck veins and a decreased air entry with hyperresonance on the affected side. So the correct management for a tension pneumothorax is not to get a chest x-ray to confirm but to decompress immediately. You do this by getting the biggest needle you can, such as a 14 gauge, and putting it in the second intercostal space, mid-clavicular line of the affected side. You would then complete with the chest strain. This is because you've now given the patient a regular pneumothorax. And the third T is cardiac tamponade. Tom, how do we treat that? This is not something you'd be tested at in third year level, although you should be aware that the correct thing to do would be to remove the extra fluid around the heart, which is done by a needle paracentesis. And lastly, a massive PE, thromboembolus. This is treated by thrombolytics via a central line. It is important to know that doing 
compressions may also help dislodge this as well as giving boluses of IV fluids. Another option would be surgical removal of the clot. So that completes the four H's and T's. I would encourage everyone to spend some time to memorise that. In ALS in third year, you will be given formal teaching with scenarios, and this was tested in OSCEs. So we had two stations which were tested on these principles. One was a tachycardia in an awake patient, which is something we will cover shortly, and the other was an overdose of opioids in a post-operative patient. Airway management is a common theme in these stations. So we said earlier that ALS is not just for dead patients, and by that we mean patients that haven't collapsed and can talk to you. We will first consider someone who presents with a tachycardia. There is a detailed algorithm which I would encourage you all to look at for listening to the rest of this. So Tom, when someone has tachycardia and is unstable, i.e. with adverse features including shock, syncope, myocardial ischemia or heart failure, delivering a synchronised dish shock is recommended. An unstable patient with tachycardia, that sounds like ALS, so we shock them and we give them drugs, which in this case is amiodarone, 300 milligrams IV over 10 to 20 minutes. So Tom, what happens if the patient is stable? So the next thing that you need to consider when a stable patient comes in with tachycardia is, is that QRS complex narrow or broad? So by narrow, we mean under 0.12 seconds. So so when you think about a very fast rhythm with a broad QRS, what does that sound like, Luan? VT. And what do we do with people with VT? We give them amiodarone 300 milligram IV. Yes, we would not shock an awake patient. Obviously, if they were to become unstable, which would be common with someone with VT, we would then shock them as per normal ALS. So VT is normally a regular broad QRS. If for for instance, it is irregular and broad, you might need a little bit of extra help. This might be atrial fibrillation with a bundle branch block making it look broad. The algorithm recommends seek expert help for the irregular broad QRS. So Tom, what about narrow complex tachycardia? So without looking at the algorithm, what does an irregular, fast, narrow complex rhythm sound like to you? Atrial fibrillation. Right, and we know with atrial fibrillation, we need to either rate control or rhythm control, and we need to consider thromboembolic risk. In the acute setting, we would try to control the rate with either a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker like diltiazem. If in heart failure, consider digoxin or amiodarone. So what happens if someone was to have a fast, narrow complex tachycardia, which was regular? What does that sound like? Supraventricular tachycardia, better known as SVT. So the treatment of SVT includes... Vagal manoeuvres, adenosine, 6 milligram rapid IV bolus, and continuous monitoring of ECG. Vagal manoeuvres include things like carotid massage, which is not recommended in the elderly population due to theoretical risk of breaking off carotid plaques, or something like trying to blow out a syringe filled with air. This is similar to bearing down. This increases vagal tone and slows the heart rate. If this is not successful, we can then give the drugs adenosine 6 milligrams, rapid IV bolus, and then give a further 12 milligrams if needed. If you are to look at the algorithm, the next step says, is sinus rhythm achieved or not? Although both options say, continue monitoring and seek expert help. If the rhythm reoccurs, you would treat again. So Tom, what are the key points in the tachycardia algorithm? 
So if the patient is unstable, we revert to ALS top principles. We would use drugs and electricity, remembering we would not shock an awake patient. If the patient was awake and stable, we need to consider whether it's narrow complex or broad complex. Remember, a broad complex tachycardia sounds like VT, and we know how to manage VT. If it's a narrow complex tachycardia, we then consider whether it's regular or irregular. Is this SVT or atrial fibrillation? The next topic we will be discussing is bradycardia. Similarly to tachycardia, the first step is to assess whether the patient is stable or unstable. Remember to consider the adverse features including shock, syncope, myocardial ischemia and heart failure. So it would not surprise you if you have a stable patient with bradycardia with low risk, we would just observe. This might be, for instance, an athlete and this may be normal for them. High-risk bradycardia is recent asystole, Mobitz 2 AV block, complete heart block with broad QRS or ventricular pause of greater than 3 seconds. Most of those are self-explanatory and you would have learnt about previously. If the patient has any of those features or is unstable, such as they are in shock and their blood pressure is low, we would need to increase the heart rate and we can either do this by drugs or electricity. We would always start with drugs, which is atropine 500 microgram IV. Atropine is the only drug given first line. If drugs were not effective, we would then move on to using electricity, which might be using transcutaneous pacing, which involves putting pads on the chest. And in some settings, they may do transvenous pacing. And there are alternative drugs such as isoprenolin and adrenaline. And that's it for bradycardia, which is a little bit more straightforward than tachycardia. If it's stable and low risk, you do nothing. If it's unstable, then you can either speed up the heart with drugs or electricity. For repetition, the drug used first line is atropine. And that concludes all we had for advanced life support. We hope that these recordings have been helpful and the next topic we hope release will be asthma, which is another topic commonly tested in third year. Thank you.